You're listening to The Running Public. From marathoners to mud runners, we all have the same goal. Get to the finish line faster. That's right. This podcast is for you guys, the running public. This is the Running Public's Training Tuesday. Training Tuesday is where we talk about training only. One topic, we dive deep, we explore it completely. It's training, it's Tuesday. Training Tuesday. Tuesday, Tuesday, Tuesday. It's training, it's Tuesday. Tuesday, Tuesday, Tuesday. See, we can still do that even without the recording, Bracken. You know what's funny about that? We did that on our first day together, and we must have been so wooden or not comfortable on the mic that we had feedback from people saying, you know, I like the show, but your intro, you can just obviously tell you're reading off a piece of paper. Which we, <laughs> which we weren't. <laughs> we were just talking back and forth and doing stuff. So that was we, a huge slap in the face. That was. We ripped, I think we ripped out maybe, what, 10 or 20 recordings of just different things that came out of our mouths. And then we just picked the one we liked the most. Yeah. yeah, yeah we had funny. no script. We'd say something and you'd be like, hey, why don't you try that again? I'm going to say something different afterwards. And that's, we haven't even gone back and revisited them. Maybe next <laughs> year we'll have to, but maybe we'll never change it. Uh, just robotic, apparently, to some people. So, um, Bracken, you, today's a Q&A, folks. We have a lot of questions. We did not even put out a poll, by the way, on like Instagram or anything, because you guys have just been flooding our DMs with questions lately, which is what we like to see. So I know a few of you have been anxiously waiting to see uh, the answers to your burning questions. But Bracken, I want to ask you, you uh, you fi- are mile time trialed. Yeah. With Kent, Ryan Kent. Yes, I did. How'd it go? I was really happy. He wasn't as pleased. Well, first of all, let's cut to the chase. What'd you guys run? I, I don't think I can release it. I think he's holding his time. He, he posted on Instagram about it and he's got like 20 comments and no one, he didn't respond to anyone. Oh, he didn't? What is so your, are you comfortable sharing your time? I didn't finish. Oh, you rabbited. Yeah, I rabbited him. So my goal is to make it through 800 at his goal pace. And I made it through 12. Wow. Good and gun to my head, I could have kept that pace for another like 100, maybe 200. And then I would have exploded. So part of like, me was thinking I should just drop off and run at 85 and run 458 or like 445. Now I'm doing the four, math. Or 720 <laughs> or 410. Like who knows what the, what the pace really was, Kirk. But part of me wanted to drop off and finish even if i had to walk the last 20 meters and try to get a sub five or something i think i know what ken's goal was i have a fee- i have a guess you don't okay. have to confirm it or deny it I'm not going i to. i think he was trying to break 440 and he would have been very happy with that based on his size and his training style right now i think that would have been a very good time that's what my guess is okay. so my guess is and you have not told me this my guess is you guys ran 70s and you could have faded home in an 85 and run 455 that's okay and then oh and i had okay. a decision to make because yep. my buddy Ross, who's training for that ultra, he came out and recorded us and then ran a time trial right after he wanted to run one. And so I was going to rabbit him too. So it's like, do I try to just turn myself inside out and then leave him out to dry? So instead I finished and like two or three minutes later, I rabbited him for, for a lot of his race. And his goal is to break six. So I took him out at 129 and I Dude. stepped off the track and let him run lap two by himself. And then I ran lap three and a half with him. And he negated a split and ran 542. Oh, wow. That's huge. That means yeah. he even has more in the tank. Oh, yeah. That's awesome. Yeah, I think he could have run 538 or something if he had 
if we had known that's what he was, because he had no idea. He said, I have no idea if this is just arrogance talking, but I'm quitting running if I can't break six. But I have no idea if I can break six. Because <laughs> he's, you know, know he's never run a mile for time, I don't think, in his life. Hmm. Hadn't been on a track in 15 years. That's a good, that's not bad. He should be proud of that. And I think he was 200, 202 that morning. Oh, his weight. Yeah. He's 5'10", oh. 200. And he's running an ultra. Yeah. Well, he's down from like 240. Okay. That's awesome. I love hearing that. And that's only going to keep getting better and better if he just keeps trimming just a titch. Is he a muscly guy or is yeah, he I, a... I, I, you know, college running back. He was, he's, he's thick. Yeah. With yeah. two C's. Well, I'll tell you what, Bracken. I, um, we're recording this on Tuesday morning on election day, aren't we? Yes, we are. Um, we're a little behind because I've been on vacation, but I am considering uh, giving my uh, my old stumps a, a spin today, Bracken, for the first time in over five months. I just cringe when I hear that. I'm like, excited for you because I know what it's like to go five months without running. And then I cringe because it felt like a week or two ago you were saying, I still have pain everywhere. I just think if it's it, it could be some sort of an inflammatory situation on the soft tissue around the bone. It's been five months, man. And I've been, you know, I've been out in the woods freezing my butt off these last couple of weeks, deer hunting. And so I'm cold. And when I get back to the, the truck, I decided to do these like wind sprints down the gravel road just because I want to warm up, to be honest. It, mm-hmm. I look ridiculous. If anybody saw me with a headlamp and a bow in my hand running down ghillie the road, suit. I think I uh, no ghillie suit. But Anyways, and so it's been feeling okay during that. Maybe because my toes are frozen, I don't know. But I, I've done a few of those now. So. Oh, and a a break would feel worse in that weather. A break would feel worse in that weather. Yeah, in cold oh, right, correct, weather, correct. that would bark just normally. Like being awake, it would bark. Correct. So been getting out of bed with no pain. Been walking around with very little to no pain. Uh, I think it's time to give her a rip. I'll keep you posted if that's the case. I'll just do one mile. I'll be very smart on very soft terrain, probably run it in about, I'll go all out, you know, me. So probably about, you know, eight minutes or so with the fitness I have. We'll see how it goes. I have lived that. Yeah. It comes back quick though. Yesterday after that time trial, I would have just gone home, but Kent had, Kent found a $30 round trip flight. That's awesome. He's like, I might as well just come down and like hang out with you for the weekend and we can run the time trial together. So I would have just gone home, but he wanted to, Mondays are usually his long run day. So we got on the trail and started chatting and we did an eight and a half mile cool down. Oh, wow. And so I had a 10 mile day and- uh, Following a four hour effort the weekend before. Yeah. And, And I felt like really tired the rest of the day and my legs are fine. So it comes back quick. I hope you're right. I hope you're right, sir. I will I will keep the good people of the running public posted. Hopefully I'm just a few months behind your progression. So we can we can really track this then. So on run 16, I ran a 5K time trial. And then on run number 20, I did, I rabbit him for the, a mile. So you can on run 16, run your 5K and then do your 1200. And we can see, we can track our fitness progression. But you did a lot of incline running, which you weren't counting as running. You did I counted flat runs. No, I did. I'm on my 20 overall right now. Oh, yeah, I, okay. If I hiked incline, I didn't count it. If I ran at incline, I counted it. All right, 16. We'll see. I, hopefully, I'll be up to three miles by then. We'll see. I know. I'm going to slow play this one. Yeah. If anybody looks at my Strava and sees like big mileage adding up or like something long, like just yell at me. Okay. Like, I, I'm going to need your help on this, people, because Bracken, you know my tendencies. Yeah, you rip it up. Well, I'm excited for you. I, again, I, I've experienced this with you. I'm just a month or two ahead of you in the process. And I vividly remember 
that feeling of, I think it's time for the first run. I may just do incline work today too. I haven't decided. I may be smart with a little less impact, but um, well, thanks, sir. Should we jump into today's uh, Q&A? We have a lot. Let's just start busting them out. All right. Rapid and, fire. And I'm going to, I'm going to preface it with this. So I have most of the questions I've screenshot them on our running public Instagram messages. Um, we got a lot of like personal story type questions where they can get a little long winded. So bear with me if we, if we tell a little more to the story than we need to behind some of these people's questions. Also, if you send in a question, I got some like novels from you guys, which is, it is what it is. Like I may not read the whole thing because it's just too much. So that's what we're going to start with. But we don't have very short, concise questions like we normally do because we didn't submit a poll. So these are longer ones. Can I kick her off? I would love for you to kick her off. All right. Just because this plays right off the episode of What Should Hard Feel Like, which okay. I got a lot of messages telling me that was an inappropriate title. <laughs> I, I thought that was, I didn't even think about it. Did you? Of all people, we should be on on it should be on our radar for being perverts i mean look at our screen names today do you want to tell people what your our screen names are today i do not my mom listens to the show <laughs> okay we'll keep it yeah our mind should have went right there yeah anyways okay. so a, a buddy of ours messaged and he said he's been doing this 10k progression you know six by mile one by two mile plus four by mile and then two by two mile plus two by mile. And then he just completed three by two mile. He's doing a 10 K progression, getting ready for OCR stars on our recommendation. And then yesterday it dropped. What's the workout for the, the, the fourth workout? It's a 10 K. We nailed it. Sweet. So anyways, he says, why, why was this workout the hardest in my legs? My legs are still very fatigued from Tuesday. What was the workout? Three by two mile. He sent me this on Thursday and this kind of highlighted that what should hard feel like. If you're doing polarized training, everyone, and you're you're running a good solid interval workout, like three by two mile, your legs are going to be fatigued 48 hours later. That's yeah. that's not a bad thing. But generally, on day two, I feel sometimes worse than on day one after. And it's not till day three that I feel like, yeah, I could rip something up again. So it is normal. And that's why we love polarized training, because it gives you permission to work hard on your hard days. And then it takes away the decision of how hard do I need to go on my easy? You just know it's easy. You just know mm -hmm. I am recovering, recovering, recovering. You think Mark Botris, he's out there and every step he's thinking, all I'm doing is repairing my body. This is not fitness right now. This is repairing. So I absorb my fitness. So yeah, you should be feeling pretty tired two days after and that's normal. That's okay. 0% chance you're fully or even close to fully recovered from a workout like that 48 hours later. Especially Maybe. if he ran it at goal 10K pace. He ran well, no, 10K at 10K pace. Oh, he's probably surpassed his lactate threshold at points in those intervals. He's getting into like race type effort, probably the last half mile of all those two mile repeats. I bet you if you look at his heart rate data, no wonder his legs are trashed. And he's probably in race type shoes. Yeah. Since that's generally what you do on interval days, which is again, why recovery is so nice because you can get in your minimal racing shoes and pound and build up the tolerance to those and then recover in nice plush shoes afterwards. And, and you're, you're that, that's how the, the, that stress adaptation cycle works. You stress yourself, you recover, and then you adapt, but you need those 48 to 72 hours of regeneration before you get better. So that's normal people. You know, I go back and forth on as coaches, you know, we, we both give like structured training on purpose on certain days of the week to our athletes. And when I hear a question like that, sometimes I go back and forth between going to like the 
take it one day at a time model. Like these are the quality sessions I'd like to get done this week and wait till your body's ready for the next one versus as coaches, we have to give a program and we have to prescribe certain days. But I like the malleable schedule for somebody for something like this, because what was on his plan on Thursday? Did he have like a midweek long run plan? And I'm not, I'm not coaching him. Oh, you're not. Okay. This is just a, a, someone that we, you and I both know. Okay. I'm not saying his name because I don't want to call him out for wondering why he was sore. And I don't think it's a bad question, but I think it's one that if you don't have a background with this, it could be disconcerting that 48 hours later, you're not recovered. Oh, you have a big mountain race or any race for that matter. And even a week later, you go out to do your first quality session and your legs are still bankrupt. Like it can take a long time to recover from hard effort. So, which is the point to build more, uh, you know, resistance to fatigue in the future. But And over time that 72 hours gets cut down to 48. Mm-hmm, exactly. And now you can fit more work in. Well, I know you don't want to call him out, but I'm going to call everybody out. Who okay. Left this Fine, that was Marquette. Marquette Schumate. Marquette Schumate. Even though it's not Schumate. It's Schumate. Schumate. I like Schumate. Um, I like Schumate too. We're going with that. All right. Jeremy Whitley says, grip strength and strength endurance are vital to bulletproofing yourself in OCR. Thank you, Jeremy. All right. His question how would you guys periodize grip training and what exercises would you use? And this guy, I believe, struggles um, because he's uh, failed some things in a race. He's been a good runner, but can't quite you know, pull it together. Um, so how would you guys periodize grip training and what exercises would you use? Periodizing grip training, we've never talked about. No, personally. And you and I have never discussed this ourselves. Never. Personally, I wouldn't do it any different than regular strength training. I would keep it mostly power-based throughout a lot of the year, and I'd get race-specific as I get closer. I'd make sure I have a foundation of grip crush strength, pinch strength, crimp grip, and just ability to hold on to a bar and pull a ton of weight. And I'd transfer that to swinging ability and moving through space as I get out of base phase. Here's the thing. Grip endurance does not matter. I hate to tell you, but if you get decent at any obstacles, it has nothing to do with grip endurance. It has everything to do with grip strength. Rarely are we on anything if you're decent at it longer than 20 seconds. So I am a believer of working the power aspect of your grip strength. For example, if you're somebody who wants to deadlift heavy, but you're throwing straps on the bar, like first of all, no straps, which a lot of guys still use. So you're always going barehanded. Um, I like to finish things out, like even deadlifts with like, instead of alternating grip, I like to do uh, both overhand grip and really fry them, just hit some high, higher rep count sets, heavy, heavy farmer holds with like hundred pound dumbbells, things like that, just to work the raw power. And then I like to polish those off with uh, some pinch grip on bumper plates or dumbbells, um, really having to forcefully squeeze um, some heavy weights that I may fail at 30 to 45 seconds. And that's kind of the point because mm-hmm. how, how often are you on anything longer than 30 seconds in a race ever? I, I think the only time was probably Tahoe with twister monkey twister. Correct. That was right around that 30 to 40 second time range for some people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so piggybacking what you said, I think you work real heavy, very uncomfortable on the grip, whatever it is. Um, and then as races come up, you go ahead to the ninja gym or you go start hitting monkey bars and you, and you use the, uh, you know, body proprioception type movements. And that's exactly right. But grip endurance, like, even though I do them once in a while, like dead hanging somewhere for two minutes, like, isn't, doesn't translate that well, in my opinion. No, I'd rather throw on a grip finisher to an interval session. If I'm going to do that, I'd rather finish at the track, jump on the soccer, you know, the soccer goal and just go down and back three times or until I drop off one time a month. And just let that be my skill finisher to go with all the power you build up. 
really there's there's grip power and then there's skill. And if you've done a few OCRs, you have the skill and then it's just having the power to go into it. But understandably, people are at different points of their grip progression. And earlier on, you got to work more skill work to get yourself to the point where you can comfortably move your body through space efficiently. Yeah, I agree with that. So uh, just to, to summarize, heavy, very stressful. I have the same philosophy with strength training, high weight, low reps, like put those that those hands forearms under like a really uncomfortable load. You don't need to be doing farmer carries for five minutes in order to like get the benefit. It's the raw power and the pinch and hand strength. Yeah. And, and I know we're spending a lot of time on this question, but this is a good philosophy question for OCR specific training. And everything we talk about in running, it's not about how fast you are. It's what percentage of that can you keep with less effort mm-hmm. and grips this exact same way. If you don't have good grip power, you have to squeeze with all your might to stay on a wet, cold, slippery obstacle. But if you have great crush and pinch and crimp strength in your hands, you just don't have to use a high percentage of that to get through an obstacle. And that's what grip endurance is. Grip endurance isn't, I can dead hang for 10 minutes, even mm-hmm. though that might be a byproduct of, of what we're talking about. It's, I can use 40% of my grip multiple times throughout a race because it doesn't cost me anything. That's exactly right. And I'm just going to call you out a little bit. Like Bracken, as far as I know, does not do grip work very often, if ever. But because Bracken is very good at moving his body through space because he's an athlete, he doesn't really need to. I hate to say it, but like if you can get through something in less than 20 seconds, it doesn't matter. Well, and that's kind of the thing. It's a bad it's a bad thing as a coach to say that I don't do grip work, but I don't think I've ever failed a Spartan grip exercise. You failed the rig in Seattle in 2017, but who's paying attention? That's true, but that wasn't a grip strength issue. That was a bonehead issue. Yeah. I mean, okay. So, and I feel the monkey bars because I missed the bell. But the point is, in a Spartan race, I, I I did the Ultra in Tahoe and I went through Twister Monkey Twister just fine. And I didn't do any grip strength training leading up to that, but I was deadlifting and I was doing weighted pull ups and things like that. So there was grip in there. However, if I were to go do OCR World Championships, I would have to put in a, a block of grip strength because there's mm-hmm. different levels to <laughs> grip strength and grip endurance. And I do not walk around with that on a daily basis. And so if I wanted that, like Spartan cross at the Spartan games, I would have had some issues right. doing 55 obstacles in five minutes. So yeah, it, well, if you're doing Spartan racing or OCR worlds, those are actually very different. different very. So um, next question is from ice impress, which is actually a, uh, an athlete of mine, Sayard Tanis, she's a stud. She uh, she's ran like 17 something for a 5K time trial. Freaking killing it. Um, she says this something that's been on my mind. What's that? You broke up for a sec. What did she run? Like 17 something for a 5K time trial. Oh, yeah. But I, I did. <laughs> she's fast. All right. Ah. Sayard says during race nutrition, I heard an announcer talk about an athlete taking a gel post bucket carry. So she's new to Spartan racing. She's a trail runner and she wants to, she can be very good if she wants to. So she's trying to get into this world for the first time. Hence why she hired me as her coach. Okay. So this is where it's coming from. And some of you are probably in the same boat during race nutrition. I heard an announcer talk about an athlete taking a gel post bucket carry and how smart that was to instantly replace the glycogen. The carry would have used versus fat burning source. The other running might've been using that got my mind going. I've always taken fuel based on what I know is coming up, elapsed time, terrain, uh, yada, yada. Okay. <clears throat> I never thought about the aspect of taking fuel immediately after a certain effort to immediately replace what was burned and what fuel source it had taxed. I'd like to hear about other fuel strategies for different race courses, what and when. So basically our fuel philosophy on like nuances like that. 
What do you think? I know which broadcast she's referring to, and I think think the announcer was blowing smoke. Do you think she's overthinking it? I think that the announcer led her to overthink it. That announcer was doing a little bit of hyperbole in their announcing. Was that uh, Donahue? I'm not. I'm not saying who it was. I'm See, just I like to say that, names here. You like to keep them off. Well, I have relationships with everyone, you know, as do you. But I just, I'm not calling out the person. Just that there was, there are some things that get said on our announcing sometimes that people are just fired up and they say things that aren't necessarily sound. Yeah, I don't think that we have like 20 different buttons in our control panel. We're running a race and we're like, hey, we're anaerobic. We're burning fat and bucket carry. Boop, push the glycogen button. That's down. Bloop. Put in my gels. I'm back up. I'm everything is a gradual you, gradient. You, you do like your energy meter though, like your video game. I energy. like the energy meter, but it's you not like you push a button and there goes the glycogen. I don't think it's a bad idea to take a gel coming off of something where you want a, a little boost. But no, I plan my gels around time and when I'm going to need the energy pickup. I agree with that. She she alluded in this like, hey, I take my gels. I didn't read that part of the question, but like when I have a power hiking section where I know I can slow down and take it. Um, Sarah, you're doing it right. I, I don't think that what that announcer mentioned was probably great advice, to be honest with you. I think it has to do with convenience and timing more yeah. than anything. Um, you should, especially in anything under like an hour and a half, you should be pretty saturated. In fact, I would say if you're well field, you might not need anything and still be able to perform all the way through 90 minutes. Um, but I would keep doing what you're doing. Uh, Chris John says, hi, on one of your Q and A's, can you guys go over how your running form should change and not change when doing an easy run? Are you just supposed to have a shorter stride and lower cadence? I find my form is very different when running fast than when running slow. I really like this question. I had this conversation two days ago. Okay. And I had it again two weeks ago. Like This is something that comes up a lot as people start running and they realize you're in one of two camps. You are either Hobie Call or you're Bracken Crocker. Okay. Hobie Call, if you don't have imagery in the background, scenery to, or other athletes to see what pace he's running, it's hard to tell. In fact, I have a couple clips I always send people when we're refining form to, to, to give a visual cue of what they should be trying to feel like. And it's Hobie Call. Is it because him Temecula? Temecula is one of those, yeah. Uh-huh. Where it doesn't matter if he's running the first 400 meters of the race, up a mountain, down a mountain, flat, 440 pace, 640 pace. He has the same form. It's just a little bit faster when he's fast. And it's hard to tell how easy or hard he's running because he doesn't fight anything. He's just metronomic. And then there's me. I have slow running form and I have threshold running form and I have like 5k form and I have mile form and I have sprinting form. My mm-hmm. form tends to change. And I think it, it comes from a, your muscle composition and B your background. I think, and I just had this conversation with, with a couple, but when you come from a ball sport background, your change of pace is so drastic that you drive with arms. Everything you do in a ball sport, you turn and you explode into the ground and you drive your arms hard. And so when you become a runner and you think about running fast, your arms change, which changes everything else. Where with Hobie, he just kind of cycles his arms mm-hmm. and he doesn't power through the upper body. He stays relaxed and smooth. And so I think over time, we all want to become a Hobie. You don't want to run like me. You want to run like him. But we have the natural tendencies that we just need to refine. He looks like his feet don't even touch the ground. It's a beautiful, smooth yeah. process. You also look at him and and there is zero... Um, oscillation in his head when he runs he's his head is in a completely flat line 
whether he's running slow or fast, I mean, he's not losing energy going up and down, which is actually efficient running. Yeah. Um, I, I feel like this is a, I, I, maybe it's just because I'm more hyper aware of it now, but doesn't it feel like this is a bit of a trend right now working through cadence and form? Like it's more popular than ever for people to be looking at this. Athletes have never cared about this until the recent years. I feel like at least at the numbers, do you agree with that? Yeah. Well, I think people Richard are- Diaz is to credit for some of that. Yeah. And more people doing more research now. And this off season, people are starting to dive into the nuances of their training and smart devices are starting to become more and more popular. And so people have the data, but I really like the people are starting to look into this and you know where I stand on this. I stand on, we don't change form. We refine it over time. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, I want people to make your, your fast running form a bit smoother and less like explosive and your slow running form speed it up the cadence a little bit and clean up your arm. Don't be sloppy on it so that they start to mirror each other. I think if I'm going to simplify it because the second part of his question says, are you just supposed to have a shorter stride and lower cadence? And I think the thing that it just um, is the priority here is your cadence shouldn't change if you're running slow or fast, technically, if you want to talk about efficiency. So your cadence should be the same whether you're running 10-minute pace or you're running 5-minute pace. It's your stride length that changes. It opens up or shortens. So if you're going on a recovery run, Chris, which I think you're asking about, it might be a little shuffle and it may feel a little silly and that's okay. In fact, that's desired. So 100, you know, 170 to 180, give some people some leeway. Um, stride cadence should not change no matter how fast you're running unless it goes over 180 when you're really doing some overspeed training. That's what matters. So your stride length is what changes, not your cadence. Yep. I have about a 10 beat range. I run easy about 70, 72, 74, and I run hard about 80, 82, 84. Yeah, there you go. Even if you're doing quarter mile repeats? I haven't looked into that. I did a, a 5K and a 10K, and I averaged 182 for the cross country 5K and like 184 for the 10K on the road. Oh, so right on. it's not super fast, but <clears throat> that's where I'm efficient right now. Um, anything you want to add to that? No, no, I like that answer. I've got one here. Okay. Another good one, and we get versions of this question a lot, but we've never had this particular version. When looking at just the 80 portion of 80-20 running, how much should be in zone two versus zone three? I've heard it's better to be at the high end of zone three for most of it because you want to work just under your aerobic threshold. I've conversely heard that it should be all zone two because zone three is not very beneficial. Let's, Let's dive into one nuance of recovery runs that I think are important to distinguish. Yes. You have two types. You have, I need to get back to homeostasis because I created a lot of damage the day before. Mm-hmm. And then you have a, oh, I ran a Saturday long run, took Sunday off, and now I'm going to go do a recovery run on Monday before my next quality workout, which isn't really getting back to homeostasis as much because you're not following up a quality effort with that recovery run. So I would say you could look at it in two different ways. I think on that Monday run, if you hadn't run anything hard in a few days, Sure, go ahead. Work in your zone three and high zone three if you want. I don't think you're going to take away from your quality workout the next day. Um, However, if you do a hard interval session and then you're doing a recovery run afterwards, I think zone three is high zone three is doing more damage than than good. And I'd want to keep it lower because that doesn't matter. You just need to get back to center. So that's my short answer to that. It's perfect. It's perfect. If you're the, the downside of heart rate like blanket statements are that they don't take into consideration what you did the day before. And so saying, yeah, you can run mid to low or high zone three aerobically. And that's your aerobic. You just stay under aerobic threshold. 
that that doesn't take into account the damage that you've un that, that you have to undo. And so, like you said, if you're damaged and you have to get back to homeostasis, running just below aerobic threshold can be stressful, mm-hmm. even if it wouldn't be stressful if you were fresh. And so, yeah, if I had to say how mine are, I am zone two on recovery days and zo- high high two, low to mid three on easy days. And yeah, there's a gradient to that is, days. yep, recovery versus easy. Yeah. Did I misspeak that? No, you know, you spoke that right. I just okay. think that those are the words I was looking for. I didn't use them, but there's a difference between recovery and easy days. There are. And, and there's a gradient to that. I might start at on an easy day at zone two and I might be high in zone three by the end. Mm-hmm. It's not that I just put my my watch to beep at 145. And as soon as I, I need to get to 45 as quick as possible and stay at 145, I'll start at 130 and then 135 and then at 140. And I might even hit one like 49 by the end, like the last three minutes if I'm feeling great, but it's a gradient. There's not like a blanket rule that you follow. It's you match the effort to your damage. I just think following a quality effort where you know your body took damage, err on the side of caution. Yeah. You're not you're not trying to benefit your fitness on that day. So, and then if you're not following up a quality workout and you're just going out for an easy run, like you can let it drift a little bit. Yeah, and our only purpose in between workouts is to recover Mm -hmm. from the last hard one and be prepared for the next one with whatever aerobic benefit we can also get throughout that time. So if going too hard negates the recovery and going too slow just guarantees you have your recovery, there's really no question in my mind which side I'd err on. I would always err on the side of a little bit less as long as you're hitting your hard days. Yep. I agree completely. Next question, Riley bro. <clears throat> One question I had while listening to that episode uh, was you mentioned burnout. I don't know what episode this is a while ago. I often find myself getting burnt out or just being lazy. Okay. I think a lot of people can relate to that. I'll run my normal training schedule for a month or so, see massive progress. Then when recovering, take an extra day and it turns into an extra week. Then no desire to run. I've run a few Spartan races in 2019 and was fortunate enough to get one in in 2020, but I want to advance out of the open heat into age group, but I just can't seem to find my drive during this mass shortage of races this year. He asked if we had an episode out here already about it. Um, We don't necessarily. So uh, what are your thoughts on that, Bracken? Two very concrete thoughts about that. The first is that it could be a sign that you're arriving to the end of your training block having done a bit much. Mm-hmm. If a week turns into two, if you need a full week at the end of a, a month or two training block, it might've been a really, really hard training block. So easy answer is you could back off slightly, space out your quality days a little more, go to two instead of three, and that gives you some longevity. But the other piece is that I struggle with this myself. If I don't have my next block waiting, I kind of drift. When I'm nearing the end of my previous block, my next block has to be formulated. Mm-hmm. I don't I don't formulate my next block during my down off week. I formulate it prior to that. And then I refine it during that down week with the lessons I learned from the previous plan. And so I need something waiting with the scripted days in sight. So I know this is a three day off and two days on the bike and then three days light jogging and I'm back into it rather than I'm going to take a week off and then decide what happens next. I agree with the first part of that with, you know, he may just be doing too much and then um, just needing a break. You know, he's trying to mimic what the pros are doing or putting in too much volume. Maybe you need to be a three day a week runner and not do anything in between and just see how long you can sustain that where you're kind of craving every run. Um, The other thing, man, it goes back to our accountability partner um, episode. Do you have an accountability partner? Do you have anybody that's giving you shit if you don't? Do you have anybody who's giving you positive encouragement? 
I believe that motivation is intrinsic. It has to come with from within to be sustainable. However, there are tools outside of that, like accountability partners or a coach. I mean, a guy like this screams like, dude, hire a coach for a couple months and see if we can't like break some of these habits. I hate to say it, but like you want to be held accountable. You want to keep the ball rolling. You want to do it smartly. Maybe learn a few things about your body and your cycle and, and get some help or at least create an accountability group. Um, that's the first two places I would go with him. And I'd probably back off his training load on a regular basis, which it sounds like you would probably do as well. Yeah. 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 That's what I would look. But it's one of those things. We don't know what he's doing. It's tough. You know, he might be doing three days a week and he just doesn't have a goal that excites him. Or he might be running 10 times a week and be burnt out. It's exactly. He says he doesn't have a goal that excites him with the shortage of races. So create one. Find something to go after. Yeah. Have somebody hold you to it. You got another one lined up? Okay. I have a question about something that's affecting me a lot. I have been having problems with tripping and falling while running. I know it happens to everyone, but this has happened to me four times in the last two months, twice in one trail race, once in a night trail race, and once running in my neighborhood. It's been an issue before, but it's worse now. It's frustrating because then I get hurt, I take days off, recover, and then get hurt again. I have no idea most of the times what I even tripped on. There's no obvious rock or anything where I tripped. Any ideas or am I just clumsy? Well, you're definitely clumsy, (laughs) but... (laughs) but. Uh, that came from the running public uh, messages. I think we screenshot some of the same ones. Um, you know how you have different strides. People have, you have the shuffler, you have the people who do well with their high knee drive. When I fatigue, I get a forward lean and I start shuffling and, and you've seen me trip a few times in races. Once I get fatigued, I'm just not lifting those feet up very high. And the smallest undulation in terrain can get me sometimes if I'm starting to get tired. Part of me wonders, wonders if that's, if that's your shtick. Part of me wonders if your mind's wandering and you're thinking about busy life and not paying attention to the trail in front of you. Part of me wonders if you're just a klutz. I don't know. What do you think, Bragan? That's all of it, right? You're either you're either not picking your feet up as you cycle through or you're not paying attention or it's both. And it happens. Ryan Kent fell on our run yesterday in the woods. We were on mm-hmm. this single track and they had a lot of those little tiny mini saplings that they cut down to like a half inch or inch off the ground. Mm-hmm. And we were already tired and Kent is like me. He's a low strider and he caught his toe on one, caught himself and about a quarter mile later went down. And that's the stuff that always gets me. It's catching your toe when I fatigue and my stride drops even lower. And so, you know, it's one of those things where you decide the skill work I need right now is vigilance. I need mm-hmm. to practice being really, really aware of where my feet are landing. And if you are striking the ground right underneath your body, and you are landing with a good soft tread and you are watching where you're going and you're being intentional about each stride, it's tough to trip. But the moment we start thinking about other things, we go down really, really easily. I think it's, um, yeah, I think it's your, your head space is not present. For me, if I'm tripping on any run other than in a race when I'm really fatigued, it's usually because my mind's wandering. And this time of year is tough with the leaves on the trail and stuff. Like that's when I've taken some of my hardest falls, not seeing a rock that's under leaves or a root. Like it could be you know, that time of year, but I don't know, be present is what I would say the first piece of advice is. Every OCR race and every trail race I've ever run, I get to some point where I catch my foot on something and I go, all right, that's it. Lock it down here. Get locked in because you're starting to fatigue. You're starting to think about splits or where someone is or what's coming up and you just need to get back right into locked in mode. And that Mm -hmm. that happens to us all. Um, Next question, Zane Freeze. Who interacts with our page a good bit? I appreciate that. Uh, Zane says, amongst other things in this message, I also would love to hear you guys talk about how to create your own training plan. 
Maybe you haven't. I missed it. Um, he's basically was coached by somebody and he's leaving that coach and doing some self-coaching for now. So he's a little nervous about his progression. He was steadily improving under this coaching, but wants to learn how to do it himself. First of all, I'm assuming you're saving you're, you're sa- saving money by doing this because if you're progressing and you leave that, that coach, I think you're not smart. So if you're looking to save some finances for a while, uh, then I totally get it. What would be your first piece of advice? Basically, he says he wants to, our general thoughts on how to create your own training plan. We can give him some brief advice. Well, <clears throat> this is a loaded question. Oh, yeah. oh, yeah. My take is that, you know, in the movie Beer Fest, <laughs> what's, what, what's a ZJ? Kind of, <laughs> yeah. If you have to ask, you can't afford it kind of thing. Like if the question you're asking, and Zane, I mean this with all due respect, but if the question you're asking is how do I go about setting up a training plan to self-coach myself, you're probably not ready unless unless we're reading into this wrong. But what I would say is it's time to start going back through your logs. And the, the blueprint for what has worked for you is sitting right there. So you might mm-hmm. not be ready now, but you have the information at your fingertips. So go back through your training logs and see what has worked. What kind of base training works for you? How long your aerobic development phase is? What kind of quality work you respond to? What kind of peaking and recovery work do you respond to? And then identify the principles that are always at play there. After that, you have to decide all right, what are my core principles that I have to apply to all of my training blocks from here on out? And then you you build out a sample block. And if you take a look at that and you trust that as much as you trust what your current coach is doing, then there's your time to, to say, okay, I think I can strike out on my own. But if if you don't believe that you can hit the ground running and do a good job with it, then then maybe it's not time to leave or maybe it's time to ask them if you can move into more of a consultancy relationship where I'm going to try to write my own, but I'd like to to buy your time and bounce ideas off you or have you nitpick or you know shoot holes in my plan. Or I'd like a once a month coaching consult with you and you know I won't pay you for full coaching, but I'll still give you money for your time. You know, Finding some sort of working relationship that will wean you off onto your own rather than just striking out in the dark. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I get it. I, I get if, if this is like, hey, I want to save money this fall. Races aren't coming up. Mm-hmm. Like it might be as simple as that. Like, hey, I can't justify paying for coaching right now. I will again in the future when races come up, but I just, I'm in this holding pattern. So I get it. Like we could be way overthinking. It could just simply be like, hey, I just don't want to pay for it right now, which and I I'm, get. And I'm all for it. I think, I think the best evolution of an athlete is an athlete who turns into a coach. What happened could, to me? Yeah. You, you, you grasp it. You, you take the pieces you didn't have, you fill that in and now you are able to go out and keep spreading the knowledge. And so that I, I'm all for it, but you don't want to set yourself up for failure either. Yeah. It's a loaded question, but it's a great question because I think a lot of people are trying to put together their own training plans. Um, I would say this and the, I'll just add a different angle from what you had said. And that is like, we've had podcasts about this, but you need to, right now you need to either pick a goal or a weakness and you need to work back. So you need to decide what your next like end game is, whether it's 5k time trialing the first Spartan race of the season, which is TBD, or I need to work on my climbing or speed. And you need to pick a goal. You need to put some dates on the calendar and I need to work backwards from there. Okay. So start with the end and work to present time backwards. That's my first, that, I'm just going to like leave it at that. So you can at least start formulating some sort of progression with some sort of like end goal, whether it's a just building volume to a big recovery week, if you just need to put more time on feet, whether it's a few time trials, whether it's anything, just work backwards and, and try to put some rhyme or reason in that way. That's where I would start. 
We talk about reverse engineering a plan a lot, but it's so hard to screw it up if you start with what do I need six months from now on race day? And now I work backwards and I just build up to that point. And it's easy to build in check-ins along the way. All right, halfway through the plan, I need to be at this point because that'll put me in range for it. And then it, it makes it easy to periodize as well. So that's golden advice you're giving, Kirk. You start with your end result and you'll work backwards from there. Yeah, and and I like the the consult call once a month option. Like, I'll just say like, for example, like we offer like, I don't know what you offer, but it's like, hey, pay me like a small amount and we'll chat on the phone once a month and you'll tell me what you've been doing and how it's been feeling and I'll give you some advice, advice verbally and you can take it and move on. Like that's a really good option during this time too. Like just a consult call based on what you're currently doing and taking verbal advice instead of getting a written plan um, can go a long ways right now too. Yeah. And if it's not something you, again, if you're in the saving money train, then you just find, you find someone that a buddy or uh, an acquaintance that knows more about you in that particular area. And then you pick their brain as much as they'll let you. doesn't always have to be structured coaching or training. It's just uh, some people really respond to that style. Yep. Um, this next question piggybacks right off of this. This is from Adam Beach. I've been trying to figure out how to periodize my training for an OCR season where you have to try and be fast for like eight months straight. <laughs> <laughs> Would you guys recommend doing, bi doing big, long periodized phases that lead up to one big race while probably sacrificing performance and some others or getting a huge base over the winter and then just kind of sharpening up for each individual race? I mean, that's like the age old question in our sport. It is. It? And it really depends on who you are and what drives you. We've seen both work. Robert Killian sacrificed his season to win the world championship and it paid off. Mm -hmm. And then you see people that show up fit early and often. I would say Ryan Kempson. He shows up fit. He attacks. He had success early in the year. And then he tried to just extend his endurance and his ability and hold on the best mm -hmm. he could through his, his beast in mountain courses. And he was able to be a contender in pretty much every race he ran and maybe didn't have the best world's performance he would have had if he had spent all year sacrificing the other races to be ready for that. He didn't do bad at Worlds by any means, but he might have been a place or two higher with the perfect buildup. So both sides work. What drives you as an athlete? Is it constant success or is it I'm going to put all my eggs in one big basket and build? And that just really gets me going. I like the idea of putting in a lot of deposits into your bank account all winter and adding volume and just putting time in on feet. If you don't really have much going on until next racing season, because that money will always be there. And then really, this is the cycle. This is the cycle of our training season. You race, you recover for a week, you hit two to three nice building blocks of weeks, and then you taper into a race, then you recover. So you sacrifice two weeks of training, really tapering and then a, or resting up and then a recovery. Then you build or get some good training for two or three more weeks and you repeat that cycle. You can build really good fitness off of that, especially if you have a good base of running from the months prior and you can perform well all dang year. And you know what? If you're concerned about a performance at the end of the year, take off that one or two races before the big race, take a true rest week, do a proper build, don't race for a few months. And then taper in. So you can kind of have it all with maybe picking a race or two to maybe sit out from towards the end of the year if you have one big final race that really mattered. Yeah. That's how I would look at it. And it works if people can stay disciplined. Because if you look at a normal build, oftentimes coaches schedule down weeks. Every two to four to five weeks, there's a down week in there. And so realistically, that's not any different than training for three or four weeks, running a race. Training for three or four weeks, running a race and going down mm -hmm. for that 
as long as those two to four week training blocks link together with each other rather than, all right, I have the Seattle super, so I'm going to run fast and flat for three or four weeks. And then I have big bear. So I'm going to bump my volume up twice as big and run nothing but vert. And then after that, I have a stadium race. So I'm going to, if it's disjointed, you don't generate that. You don't get the train rolling that just picks up momentum and keeps getting faster and better throughout the year. But if you can join those blocks together where you're working the same principles and you progress your, your the nature of your training, then the races don't set you back. They just give you the opportunity to test your fitness and get a recovery week afterwards. I mean, the only guy that really did that was Robert Killian that we know of last year. I mean, Ryan Woods, Ryan Atkins, VJ, Kempson. I would say Tyler VJ. Veerman. He VJ what? VJ picked his shots. Yeah, but he, but he still raced a lot. He raced as much as anybody. He picked his shots, sure, but he raced a lot. That's um, true. Point being, point being is, is most people do the get, you know, the, the four or five week cycle where they're tapering, racing, recovering, building, tapering, racing, recovering, and everybody performed pretty dang well, I would say in general with a smart, the, honestly, the key is, is to really hit those two or three weeks of training hard, but really hit your recovery hard following every single race. You're actually ready. The body goes through proper cycling um, instead of like going into big weeks right after races. And then it all gets muddy and blurry and fatigue adds up. And, and then you're not getting out of your quality workouts, what you need. And it's just like a snowball effect. So it's, it really is like recover hard, train hard, recover hard, rinse and repeat. Yeah. And Ryan and I had this conversation yesterday on the trail that there's that reverse periodization of building that happens in endurance events, where with mile, 5K, 10K, that kind of work, you do a big base build and then you do your, your strength running and then you sharpen up with down moving down to race pace. But what do half marathoners and marathoners do? Do they do a big build of aerobic and then do a block of quality slower? Than race pace because marathon race is slower than anaerobic threshold so a threshold block is faster than race pace so a strength running block would technically be slower than race pace so do you run slower than merit you can't do a quality like it, it starts mm -hmm. to get convoluted so the answer yeah. is no they generally do a great 10k block of training get done with that take a down week and then move up slower into race pace and extend their pace so half marathoners and marathoners do the opposite build. They do a big aerobic build. They can move into a 10K block of training, and then they extend up into more threshold work and longer tempo work. Our sport, the super distance is around an hour. The mm. beast distance is around two hours, and that's at the elite end. As it moves up higher, it gets even longer. And that's what an elite half marathon and marathon is. So really, we should be looking more to those principles. And what that means is that you can come into the season and have February, March, April, 5K and 10K training. And then you ex extend up to more threshold work and into the mountain work as the year goes on and the races get longer and steeper. They don't always fall in line like that, but it gives you a nice structure to your progression throughout the year. If you do want to come in hot and run really well in February and then also be ready for a three-hour mountain beast at the end of the year. Mm -hmm. I also think, you know, what I did last year is I sacrificed West Virginia with Tahoe in mind. I went in tired knowing it. I put, built way too much volume. I knew my legs weren't, in hindsight especially, my legs weren't going to come around in time to have a great race in West Virginia. I had a good one, but I was tired. Um, so you can race to peak in a bunch of races leading up. And then I chose to sacrifice West Virginia by running way too much volume, not tapering enough. 
but knowing that all that was going to pay off four weeks later in Tahoe. And it did. I didn't run a long run after West Virginia. I tapered with speed and, and it worked that way. So again, I think you can perform really well early in mid season, either sacrifice one of those last races and just kind of train and build through and then have a nice gradual purposeful three week taper into your big end of the year race. Um, which should leave you pretty satisfied, I would say. So that's an approach I think I'm going to take moving forward. That's a good point. And to be OCR specific, we've never had somebody, at least on the men's side, win the second to last race of the year and the world championship. Mm -mm. Has it happened on the women's side? Has Lindsay or Nicole done that? Has it lined up correctly? No. Yes. Because Lindsay won West Virginia and then won Tahoe. She did. Last year. Not okay. in 2019, but in 2018. Okay. So it's happened as far as we know one time in five years between men and women's field. So you're right. You really have to decide when am I going to empty the tank? Cause you mm -hmm. don't get too many of those. Nope. Not at that or, two to three hour race distance. You don't. Or which race do, am I going to choose to show up tired to knowing that that's one of my last big pushes and then I'm really going to back off. Exactly. Till, till your big race. So um, next question, Dustin, Li Dustin living good. He's a stud age. I like that. Yeah. Didn't he coach under you for a while? Um, yeah. yeah. Yeah, he did. Um, Dustin says, I have a burning question about easy runs. Seems to be a theme I'm starting to notice. Here. I know for recovering, you need to keep easy, easy. So I try to go off heart rate, keeping it no higher than 145 to 150 is my easy day cutoff. But here's where my question comes in. I live in a very hilly place and all my easy runs are done in the fields and roads around my house. So the question is, I like this a lot. Do I keep the strict do not go over 145 no matter what? Now I keep it under 145, but allow myself to spike my heart rate just till I crest the hills. So he goes up hills and allows his heart rate to come up. I would have to almost what would feel like a walk on most of the hills to keep my heart rate below 145. I've been wondering if I'm doing it wrong or if it's okay to spike on the hills. So basically, should I walk these hills to keep my heart rate low in recovery days or should I just let it spike and then it'll come back down on the descent following? What do you think, Bracken? Now, a true heart rate purist would say you do whatever it takes to keep your heart rate low. And again, I bring them up a lot, but the Ingerbritsons over in uh, in in Europe, they are 100% heart rate and blood lactate meter driven in their training. And they have been known. There are stories of people who have gone over there to train with them, pros, and they start walking up hills when their heart rate spikes. And their training partners are incredulous, but that's what they do. They walk up the hill if their heart rate gets too high. And so again, if a world-class miler, 5K, 10K family all walk up their hills in training if the heart rate spikes, it's okay to do that. And I know John Yasko did this for a while. He was doing Maffetone training for a while where he did not exceed a heart rate, but he stayed right at it. And he walked up every mountain. But over the course of weeks, he was running up them eventually at the same heart rate he used to be walking. So from that end of the spectrum, you either fully commit to saying, I am going to stick to this heart rate, and then I'm going to watch myself be able to jog and then run and then even run faster at the same heart rate. Or you say, all right, I'm giving myself some leeway. I may not spike it on the hill, but I might let it go a beat or two higher, and then I really ease off at the top. Or if you do let it spike up the hill, you come to a stop at the top. But you, you, you kind of have to decide, am I a strict rule person? Or do I give myself a little bit of leeway? And I can tell you that I give myself a little bit of leeway. And there are world-class, world champion examples of people who give themselves no leeway and they use time to improve. There's not well, a right or wrong answer as long as it fits your rationale, I think. Well, Dustin said easy run, not recovery run. So if it was an easy run, which I oh, guess we kind oh, of distinguished. Yeah. yeah, there are people that do that on easy runs too. <laughs> Yatsko did it. He did it for months. 
he walked up every hill so that he wouldn't get over whatever, like 148 or something. And he said by the end of the summer, he was running up the hills at 148. Um, you have like your 10 beats a minute leeway when you go to altitude, right? Mm-hmm. It's like, well, I just know it's going to be 10 beats a minute higher or whatever. I think maybe you can give yourself that, like you can create a system for yourself. Like, hey, if it hits 155 going uphill, like create a secondary limiter. So you for sure tone it back at some point. Um <clears throat> but remember, just keep in mind, the, the point of the recovery day is to get back to center. It's homeostasis. It's not to build fitness. So like I would say erring on the side of like caution, who gives a shit if you look slow going uphill or have to walk? Like you're not being a wimp, you're being smart. Like, so yeah. I would err on that side. I, and I need to work on that too, but, or creating, like I said, that secondary heart rate limiter maybe for your hill situation. Yeah. Yeah. Both answers are correct. As long as you execute recovery and easy. And pay attention to how your body responds to both approaches. And it can be fun. It really can be fun to go out there and say, I am keeping 148 no matter what. And for two weeks, I'm walking. And then third week, you found you get to jog a little bit. Like that's that's fun. But that can also be super controlling for people. And then they can't get away from it. And they're a slave mm-hmm. to their heart rate monitor. Right. Which you don't want to always be either. No. It can become obsessive. Um, next question from Sam Conowich. I don't, I don't really know if this is a question or not, but it's amusing. Not sure when you guys are going to do your next Q&A, but I've got a question I never thought I'd ask. Oh, boy. Can, can my feet shrink from increased running volume? Question mark. <laughs> Answer, yes. He says yes. He answers his own question. Okay. I've always been size 13, really only picking up running three years ago. Got measured for the first time on a whim. Shocked to see myself under 12 now. I'm not even close to 13 anymore. I would have thought my feet would have gotten bigger, if anything. May have been interest to the rest of the running public. <laughs> now, that's that's strange. I appreciate it. I have heard of people's feet widening over time, and mine have. I used to be a 9.5, 10. Now I'm a 10, 10.5. Like I could squeeze into 9.5 ratios, but I'd it, with socks, I was a size 10. Now I'm a 10 or a 10.5. All hokas now I'm a 10.5. It's interesting. My feet have just widened with volume over time. The only yeah. thing I could think of that would make your feet get smaller is if you lost, if you actually had body fat in your feet and you lost volume when you had like a very big weight loss. Cause you see a lot of, you know, obese people have extremely swollen feet and maybe, maybe body looks fat pretty, in a foot. Yeah, looks pretty jacked. I'm stalking his photo right now. Sam, Sam looks jacked. Maybe he wasn't jacked three years ago though. I don't know. And, or maybe he had, he had like constant edema where his feet were just puffy. But yeah. I don't know. No, I've never heard of it. He just had a lot of fat deposits on the end of his toes. And just then going, his oh, this can go straight to my toes. Because he eats a cheeseburger, goes straight to his <laughs> big toe. <laughs> I, I don't know, man. I feel like mine, uh, mine definitely when they get hot, like everybody's feet kind of swell up a little bit and, and expand, I think, as your body temporizes. But you could be an anomaly or there could be something to that. If anybody knows more about that, you let us know. Um, okay, Brett Mazza. Uh, not really a question, but I want to talk about it. Hi, guys. You talk about a lot of the research you've done in your episodes. Would you consider making a post about your favorite? Thanks, as always. So he's referring to books, which we've brought up a lot, but research or articles. I know we've kind of like our broken records at this point, but why don't you just spew out like where you've learned them? I started with Jack Daniels running book. Then I moved to Lydiard's running book. I moved from there to a lot of internet articles on Alberto Salazar, Renato Canova, uh, Joe Rubio. I read the Hanson's Marathon Training Book. 
I read Maffetone's Total Heart Rate Training, I believe is what it's called. I read The Math Method. Uh, I'm trying to think what else. And then just endless scholarly articles about training efficacies. And then I got into more of the, I guess what you would call like the everyman books where it speaks to you at just a a conversational level, which is Matt Fitzgerald's, his 80-20 running, uh, racing weight, how bad do you want it? And then the book (laughs) Endure by Malcolm Gladwell. Um, There you go. Uh, I also think, you know, anecdotal experience over time has taught me as much or more than any piece of literature I've ever read. Uh, Speaking from my own behalf and my athlete's behalf, I would say, you know, endurance training now for 25 years since I started track and cross country, um, you can't replace experience ever. It's the same conversation I have, like, I took Spanish all in high school and then I went to Mexico for two weeks and I learned more in that two weeks from firsthand experience than reading books and studying in the classroom. So it's like, it's both is what I think it is. Yeah. Yeah. And I also really like finding elite level, world-class level runners and coaches training plans online. And mm-hmm. instead of stealing their workouts, you go through and you track progressions and see what their core principles are and and see what what pieces do they have in play and how does that correspond to sections, stages of the season? And, and those are really, I think, enlightening to look at to see how a pro sets up their year. And I think it's okay to be your own guinea pig. For example, I've experienced if you say, I don't know if you can see my bookshelf behind me, Bracken, you can, but yep. um, I read The Art and Science of Low Carbohydrate Endurance Performance, and I went completely keto for a month and see, seeing how I feel. I read Performing on a Vegan Diet, and I did that for a month. And the low carbohydrate performance was an epic fail on my end. I felt like absolute trash and couldn't run harder than threshold. And for example, a lot of things, but I did a lot of experimenting and some were epic fails, but man, the more you fail, the more you learn. And the more you learn, the more you get dialed in eventually in the future. So like being your own guinea pig, for example, works. So it's okay to do that too. And I do recommend reading some triathlon uh, training books for, Mm -hmm. for OCR athletes, for just pure runners, stick to the pure running. But triathletes are masters of mixing modalities mm-hmm. and and balancing training, stress, and recovery. You take a look at a pro triathlete's plan and you think you are insane. That's not recoverable. But pe- people have figured out how to really balance their stress and their recovery. And I think mm-hmm. for our sport, it makes a lot of sense. Yeah, I agree. Uh, next question from Jack Martin, Jack D. Martin. Hey, Kirk. Oh, this came personally to me. Apparently, I didn't feel like asking you. Or the running public page. Screw you, Jack. Jack Martin. Hey, Kirk. I'm a listener of the podcast from the UK. Love the work, and I'm finding it really helpful as a reasonably new runner. However, I seem to struggle in workouts when I get towards my lactate threshold, roughly 175 beats per minute. Not because of pain in my legs, but with being able to get enough air in my lungs. I always feel like I'm chasing my breath. Is that normal? Cheers. And it's funny because we just kind of addressed this in our What's It Hard feel like episode. Yep. A, it's normal when, especially when you're a new runner and B, it's why there's a, a gradient to threshold work. If it's too hard, you back off a few beats and you're still getting some benefit from that work. And as your cardiovascular system catches up to your muscular strength and endurance, you'll be able to handle better threshold work. Yeah. I mean, threshold work is breathy work. I would call it. That is the heavy breathing, but the legs aren't filling up quite yet to where that's actually the limiting factor 
if you're truly doing threshold work. So you're actually, Jack, describing threshold work pretty spot on with just saying you can't get enough air in your lungs. You're you're about where you should be on the upper end of your threshold yeah. work, isn't he? Yeah, yeah. And, and and this is, again, one of the problems with heart rate based. If your test wasn't exactly right, and I don't know what kind of test he, he exacted, if your mm-hmm. test isn't exactly right, the difference in one or two beats is really, really key once you cross that threshold. You know, if 175 is the upper end and he might want to be working at 172 right now or 173, and then you can always reassess later on. But everyone knows by this point, I'm a firm believer that there's not a single best number. There's a range and you can work at the lower end of the range until your cardiovascular system improves. Yeah. If he wants to burn the legs up, just add some undulation of terrain in there. That'll spike everything for you. I'm guessing he's doing some flat running if he's not talking about his legs going out from under him. Um, next question, Adam Beach. Beach again, huh? Oh, is that again? I don't know. I got a lot of them in here. <laughs> I got a question for the Q&A. How do I get on the Spartan Pro team? I'm tired of paying for races. <laughs> it was a really easy answer a couple of years ago. Show up to races, go top three, you're on. Become a contender and you're there. Now, I don't know, show up to all the races, get in point series, be really active on social media. You you can get there by being really good. You can get there by being moderately good and very active, or you can get there by being super good looking and having connections to companies. There's, there's a lot of ways you, you look at yourself and say, what do I bring to the table? And then you maximize that skill. Yeah. Adam, what do you bring to the table? I would say there's nobody you can email. There's nobody you can really call. Nobody's going to listen or give a shit. It's like, you just got to hope that somehow you fit into their algorithm and they paid attention to you. Like keep tagging them. Do Doing well in races will get you there for sure. Yeah. Um, if you're going to be an age group athlete, be the best damn age group athlete you can be and let them know you exist. It's more about awareness of uh, that you exist. They seem to be handing out, you know, pro contracts like candy these days. So you just, you just got to let them know. Yeah. And, and their criteria for performance is a little lower than it used to be. And so while that's good for people, it also muddies who's even out there. And so you mm-hmm. have, like Kirk said, you have to be on their radar. If you're better than people that are on the team, you just have to let Spartan know you exist. Yep. And so be a bit thirsty, take them and everything, show yourself doing really cool stuff and running great performances. And you might get that message. Yeah. Take that shirt off and do some fancy stuff up on the pull-up bar. See if you get a repost from them. Tell you what, that might get you in the door. Justin Kirk Hogan. Knows what I don't post much anymore these days, but I'm working on it. Justin Hogan, another athlete of mine who just finished his first marathon, Justin. Congratulations. That's a big day. Winter started here last week. What do you suggest for running in the snow? Certain type of shoes, your normal running shoes, yak tracks, over your shoes. Uh, I thought we'd just touch on it real quick. We did a winter running episode, Justin. Like our, God, our first training Tuesday was a winter running episode, I believe, wow. way back in January. So you could go back and listen to that. That will be helpful. Yeah. If I'm off road, I just wear trail shoes or OCR shoes for the most part. And I wear my um, my VJs with carbide tips if if there's going to be any amount of ice. I know he's a road runner. He runs hard terrain. but And then just um, normal. I wear normal shoes on the road in winter and you just pick your best line and it sucks. Yep. I, I completely agree. I would not waste your time with the act tracks. I would not waste your time with strap on carbide studded. They just they either pressure points hit you funny or they move around. I would just pick a solid winter running shoe um, or a, a trail shoe. And if we have really bad conditions, the, the VJ zeros are amazing. Like yes, the VJ are. shoes, 
they're fantastic. Uh, I've never worn a more comfortable shoe from VJ yet out of the box. Yeah. I wish they didn't have those carbide studs in them because I want to race in that shoe over any other shoe they own. So Agreed. you agree with that? Yes. They're amazing. I can't believe that. They nailed that shoe. I don't know why they just take don't take out the carbide studs. But Matt, if you're listening, I know you are Gorski over at VJ. Can we get something like that? Thank you. Uh, I, I actually started looking into if I could drill those out. Can you? I haven't found a good way to do it. Oh, they're just such a good shoe, man. Yeah. But yeah, the uh, tracks exist for for hiking, in my mind, or long mountain runs where you're going to go minutes and miles at a time with nothing on the ground. And then you hit an icy section and you just slap them on to get through it. Otherwise, I can't stand them. Hate them. Um, next question. Now, I got an email. This came into my email because it was so long and they wanted to be respectful. Uh, I'll give you the, it'll just take me 30 seconds to read it. Um, and I think this question is about prioritizing what he does with limited time now. So I just welcomed my newborn baby girl to the world three weeks ago. Congratulations. Prior to her birth was the first time in my life I consistently run for a year. I got up to about 35 miles a week. It was making some serious progress. But now with baby, I think I'll be lucky to get 10 to 15 a week. False. A week. Okay, well, <laughs> I'll continue. This should only be temporary. As in a few months when she is hopefully sleeping better, I will not feel bad leaving the house to run and have my sleep-deprived wife at home with the children. First of all, sounds like this husband is really putting these – he's doing a good job. Yes. I don't have his name saved, unfortunately. The question is – what should I focus on for my 10 to 15 miles? Two runs per week? I personally enjoy the longer, slower runs, so would rather do that. And my aerobic work is comparably stronger for me than speed. Should I focus my effort on maintaining my aerobic capacity since I doubt I can make any gains during this time? Or should I only do quality threshold speed days and maybe one aerobic quality day in, aerobic day in there? I'm caught between what I want to do and what I should do. The next race I have will be a 5K, but it's four months out. I'm going to skip the rest of this. There's a few other things. So... Limited time. What do you tell a guy to do? I tell him to get a treadmill and a running stroller to start with, but that's cheating. So let's let, let's just stick by the the confines of the question. If you're not going to do a treadmill and a running stroller, then you squeeze runs in whenever you can, and you prioritize. I would do everything at aerobic threshold. If I'm running twice a week, I'd be running hard, man. Yeah, uh, or, or even or even tempo. I'd, I'd tempo every day. I would probably twice a week. I would probably threshold and interval work. I'd run two. Yeah. Is that what you're kind of saying or just do everything at threshold? Short term. I think I'd run tempo every day. Two to three times. I'd run two to three tempos a week. I just Just out the door, start running, run hard. Yeah. Cut that, cut down. Everything would cut down. I'd start at like, you know, for me, I'd probably run out and run 620 pace and try to cut down into the mid fives for a couple miles. And then that's it. If I'm getting 15 miles a week. Yeah. I'd, I'd spend a lot of time around threshold. Yeah, I think you're going to keep the most most percentage of your fitness by doing that. I'd also be doing a crap ton of burpees and lunges and spin bike work at home. Yeah, well, you can still be there. Yep, I agree. Yeah, yeah but running strollers, you teach the baby to fall asleep in there. It happens really easily, and treadmills are key. Then you can hop downstairs even twice a day, hit, hit two miles easy on there, and, and you're done in 10 to 14 minutes. Um. Yeah, I, I think you could do whatever is going to make you feel the best at this point. But I don't think you should just go out and go long and easy uh, because that's what's comfortable to you. It sounds like you need the opposite. And you have a 5K coming up, which is threshold. So I think there's your answer. Yep. Um, uh, CR. Okay, so I'm not trying to peek for anything till next year when there are no there is a race on the schedule. So I know speed work or anything anaerobic is not necessary because it can cause me to peak too early for no reason. That's what he said. So until January, I was only going to do easy runs and some tempo threshold runs to still gain fitness along with some. My question, 
Is it a good or bad thing to throw in workouts that are non-running to push that anaerobic ability without causing a peak? For instance, I did five by 45 seconds on the assault bike and ski erg at 100% effort to push myself. Would it be good to incorporate these as my only anaerobic days? I mean, we both think that's a great thing to include. We also both think that we've maybe misled intentionally how easy it is to, to peak too soon. It's kind of tough to peak too soon. You'd have to be putting in serious speed work more than once a week for several weeks in a row before you would start to uh, generate a, a premature peak. And so mm-hmm. you can still keep quality in your, in your weeks. You just can't run 5K pace or faster more than once a week. So it, 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 it's less dangerous than you think. It's just when you sustain that work for multiple times a week for multiple weeks is when you get into trouble. I really like doing all quality work in that phase on non-impact stuff. I think it really builds fitness nicely, has no chance of burnout in my opinion, um, coupled with maybe a threshold run and some easy running throughout the week. I think that's a fantastic plan. I think you go ahead and throw that in once or twice a week and get that heart rate up into your zone five and crush yourself in those to no detriment. I think when you choose to start getting into really good run fitness, it's gonna come back that much quicker. So I, I've worked with that model a lot. Yeah, it's good. Um, I believe we have three questions. I just don't want people to be afraid of accidentally peaking too soon because it takes some real serious interval work and targeted rest to peak too soon. Interval work plus then a somewhat of a recovery or taper into rate. Like it takes yeah. a perfect formula. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Steven Geppert. Hey, great podcast. Thank you, Steven. I have a question for your Q&A segment. When looking just at the 80 portion of 80, oh, this is you, freaking, you already answered this one. Yeah. You stealer. Okay. This is from Welding Goggles, Matt over in the UK, another new athlete of mine. Question one, calluses and hard skin on hands and feet. What is good? What is bad? Can your hands be too hard or too soft for OCR? What is the best way to take care of working hands and feet? I feel like calluses are glorified the same way the suffering and the grind are, but what is actually useful and which are detrimental? I actually get calluses from the end of my toes sometimes from running. I'm not convinced they are useful. He's got two questions, but that's the first one. Do you have any thought on that? I think that the bigger the callus, the bigger potential rip and blister you have underneath it. But you got to have some callus built up to handle things. So I know there's people who file theirs down and clip theirs. Mm-hmm. And I know there's people who just rock with it. And I know at every, every Ninja Warrior gym has like this little sander, electric sander that the guys put on their calluses when they're doing OCR or doing grip and ninja work. And it's not because the calluses get in the way, it's so they don't rip. Yeah. So that's the only thing I can think of. If they get too big and hard, it's it just becomes a tear point. So you don't want them too big, but at the same time, you need some resistance down there. So if you're not having trouble with it, I don't know, don't do anything drastic, but yeah, sanding them down a bit helps. T- front of the toes, you don't hear about a lot. All I know is calluses allow me to get through more grip and strength work. Once they're built up nicely, I think it creates like longevity versus if you got these baby hands, like office hands, like yeah. once your hands hurt, like you're screwed. So I say, let those calluses go. I can't tell you the freaking number of women that come into my personal training sessions, Bracken, with lotion on their hands, like people like, like lotion up their hands to like soften their calluses. And then they go to grab the pull-up bar and they can't hold on. It drives me nuts. Don't lotion those things. Let them be. That's I all. Agree. All right. Question two from him. Fueling before and during a workout. Um, 
what should you take when? Okay, well, let's keep this brief. Fueling during cross training. If you were going to fuel hydrate on a workout, would you do the same if you had to cross train that workout due to impact or injury? So fueling cross training versus running. Would you ever have some tailwind in a water bottle for cross training for a workout, for example? Basically, I'm confused about what fuel to use when and for what modalities, distances, intensity. We talk about learning what fuel and hydration works prior to race day by using them in training, but I don't want to get into bad habits by fueling through every workout. On the other hand, you might be able to get more work done in training if you feel better. Please help. Now, I'll fill you in. Nat is a guy who is doing a lot of cross training right now because he knows his body can't handle a lot of volume. So he's wondering if there's basically a difference. I don't think so. Uh, I think cross training is a good time to start training your body to take calories and water in because without the impact and the sloshing, it tends to be less damaging to your digestive system. Uh, but I follow the same rules as running basically, where if I'm not going longer than 90 minutes, I'm not taking it. But if I'm targeting the ability to take in, then I take it. Don't, he's doing nothing longer than 90 minutes right now. So I would say skip it. Yeah. Yep. Um, and, and if there is a time where you wanted to practice it, go for it. But more often than not, I don't think you should give your body the crutch. I think 90 minutes or less, people should eat food and work out. And if you're going to get in a meal within an hour, even hour and a half after a workout, like that's fine. You don't need to be taking all these expensive supplements and stuff. If it's a quality workout and you know you're not going to eat soon, sure, take some recovery, take something else. I was like, eat food and freaking work out. Like Ryan Kent this weekend just highlighted how different everyone's body is. We were talking about when we were going to get up before the time trial because we wanted to do it early in the morning where the wind was <clears throat> was not as strong. And I was like, well, if I'm eating breakfast, I got to be up two and a half hours before we're going to start warming up. And he's, he's like, well, I, I might just sleep in a little bit and just have like a donut or two, like half hour before we start. You he know? likes the donuts, doesn't he? He loves donuts and he has an iron stomach. He, he And I've told this story, but at Temecula, ah, Teme Monterey, Temecula, doesn't matter, Monterey. One day at an NBC race, a national series race, the race got delayed a little bit because of fog and the cameras weren't ready. And we're all doing our last minute strides and lacing up. He goes, man, I just feel like I'm going to be too hungry. And he eats half a donut and pounds a banana and chugs some water and then walks over to the line and we start. At the line, you always see him with a water bottle. He's always munching something last minute. He can just do that. And he knows that because he's experienced that in training. And I know I can't because I've experienced that many times as well. So Half of it's just matching yourself to what your body can handle. So when Ken came over, like he stayed with you, I assume? Yeah. So did he like go to the store, get some donuts, make sure he had his pre-mile donuts on hand? On the way from the airport to my house. And he's like, hey man, I'm not just going to eat all your food. I'd feel way better if we start stop at the grocery store, which I respect. But yeah, donuts were the first thing we picked up. So that's his, I remember we, I stayed with him in Utah last year, two years ago. Uh, he had donut there too, glazed Simple glazed donuts from the gas station. I think yep. two of them or something. Um, interesting. All right. And then this is the uh, this is the last. So it looks like a two-parter from Jeremy Whitley again. Um, and then we're good. So here's his question. I'll do the uh, the first one here. He's going to give us some context. Like I said, I get some stories with some of these. Yeah. I have a wife that likes hanging out with me. Good job, three kids, Jeremy. Three kids that are doing school from home due to COVID. Lots of household chores and a demanding full-time job. Okay, pretty relatable, I think, for a lot of people. Fortunately, my wife and I both work from home, but time to train is more precious than gold. I'm noticing a theme with these. We got like heart rate, threshold work, and then time crunch questions. All right, 
I wake up early to train, but some days are more difficult. Context is out there. Number one, I have a walking treadmill desk that I'll work at while wearing a weight vest and leg bands for resistance. He's sneaking it in. I'll be walking like this from anywhere two to five hours at least twice a week. What training benefit am I getting from this and how might it fit into the scheme of quality days versus recovery days? The dude's walking on a, just moving a lot, his body moving a lot. Almost reminds me of the Adam Buck episode where he's just moving yeah. a lot during the day. Well, he's strengthening all those little supporting systems, the tendons, the little muscle fibers that are on this, you know, supplementary to the main muscle group. So it's certainly helping your body. I don't know if he's training for a sprint or an ultra. If he's training for an ultra, that's sports specific work. That's time on feet walking and that's beneficial. Otherwise, it's just low end aerobic work. Yeah. I would say it sounds like he's doing these on days he can't run, times at a premium. So on his non-running days, he sneaks in and works from the desk. Dude, that's your recovery. You did it. You did a great recovery effort that day. Um, I like that setup. If you're really that pinched for time, I would continue to plan those days in on recovery. If you can't get a run in, great. And set yourself up for success for your next uh, runner quality day. Those are little stories like that that you hear when people are successful and you find out they had something a little different in their life that, that just kind of put them over the edge that helped them tip a little bit. And that, mm -hmm. that can be that kind of thing. That might be cramp reduction in the future. That, that might be staying power in a race. That might be better core and hip stability. Mm -hmm. I like it. you had, yeah, you had an example of Cody Moat when he won the most convincing Spartan world championships by over like four minutes in 2017, spent two week at, two weeks prior to that, that race elk hunting in the back country. All, I mean, he did very little running. He was hiking up and down mountains with hundreds of pounds on his back once he packed out what he had, you know, harvested. And he came in like really kind of fresh, but yet trained and just in a different mindset, different body situation. He had all that fitness he had backed up and kind of rolled in with this unique situation. And he had the greatest race of his career, I would say. Yeah. How do you explain that? Yeah, you would never build that into a plan. And yet clearly there were principles at play there that worked. So Jeremy, I would keep doing it. Yeah. And then the second question here, and then uh, that'll be it, is most Saturdays are completely packed with chores. That's a busy guy. In an effort to catch up from the week, I can get up early for my long run, but some days it's go time based on what my wife has planned. What training benefits can I get from splitting my long run up such that I'm doing 20 minutes of running, get back into the house to do laundry, et cetera, for 40 minutes, then get back out for another 20 minutes or so of running and do that over the course of six hours? of running while remaining active during household chores, managing kids. I know this is a staggering of intervals is strange, but is it potentially a useful strategy? Now this guy is just hustling. He is. And it is useful. And there are people who do that. There are marathoners uh, that, that triple instead of doing a 30 mile run, they'll do three by 10 in a day. You know? He's talking like six by 20 minutes. Right. And like so like the principle applies, I wouldn't do it every weekend, but if that's the time you have available, that's training time. And then each one of those runs is almost like a compromised run because you've already used your legs. You've already been time on feet all day. And so those 20 or 40 minute sessions are worth a little bit more. Mm -hmm. I don't hate the idea. No, um, I just be careful with it. I, I, I strongly under the philosophy, if you're in a good training cycle, that every third week you need a solid steady long run at minimum. Every three weeks at minimum, every two is ideal, but every three I'll take where you're steady on feet, no laps. If you need to, can you plan that out where you get like every third week at one long steady one in and then two Saturdays in a row, you piece it together the way you're mentioning. Um, I think you're gonna be just fine. Yeah. That'd be my advice. Yeah. Fit it in when you can get it in. That's all I got. That's all my questions. Do you have any more? No. 
No, I'm satisfied. I got to turn this episode around. Yeah, you do have to turn this around. It's 8.42 on Tuesday morning. How fast can you get it out, Bracken? I'll find out. Get out there and vote, people. Yes, sir. Talk to you later.